Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Christina Nunez, a partner and co-founder at True Beauty Ventures. Hi, Christina. How are you today? Hi, Priya. I'm doing great. So happy to be here with you. I know. It's been a moment, Christina, since you and I have seen each other, and I believe you were ahead of the exodus from New York to Miami well before anybody else was and well before COVID. That's right, correct? Yes. I moved here in 2019, but for me, this was a coming home because I grew up in Miami and I lived in New York for 12 years. So I still kind of, I think I get the title of New Yorker after 10 years. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, Miami's home for me. And so in 2019, we moved back here before the mass exodus and before COVID. So Christina, you've been in the beauty space for a long time. And obviously coming to Miami now, there's a lot happening in beauty there. But take me back a little bit. How did you first get involved in this space? And were you on the brand side? Were you always an investor? What was happening in those early days? Yeah, so I think feel like I've had two lives and now with True Beauty Ventures, a third life, quite honestly. But I did start my career in finance before I moved over to beauty. And even to take a step back before that, I've been so passionate about this space ever since I was little. I grew up in a very Latin household. My whole family is Cuban. And my mom, I remember even when I was little, you know, putting on her makeup and getting dressed and loving to do my hair and and making myself presentable. And it just was a part of how I grew up. And I was that friend in the friend group that would always offer to do people's makeup and to do their hair. And I was kind of the beauty go-to person amongst my friend group. So beauty has always been a really important part of my life. And so to find myself here now is amazing to be able to combine my passion with what I do for for a job and for work. Um, So I actually started in... 2007 as an investment banker at UBS doing consumer and retail. Uh, And then I went on to be an investor at two different private equity firms, one being Catterton, uh, which is now known as L. Catterton, and then Tengram Capital. And I loved being on the finance side. I loved learning that skill. Um, But after a while, I kind of realized, you know, I had only really sat on one side of the table. And so the opportunity presented itself for me to join one of my portfolio companies at Tengram, which is a brand called Laura Geller Beauty. And to think that I could actually enjoy uh, working at a company that was in my passion space of beauty was kind of a dream come true. And while I didn't think I would stay for as long as I did, I was excited to jump into that world. And so in 2014 or so, I joined Laura Geller. What was supposed to be a one-year engagement quickly turned into three years. And so I was there in multiple different roles um, within the company, learning everything there was to learn about the beauty industry. So really kind of getting my, my feet wet there and also really learning what it was like to be at a company. Um, And from Laura Geller, uh, I went on to run a brand called Clark's Botanicals as the GM, which I think, Priya, that's when we met initially when I was working at Clark's Botanicals. Um, And so I went from a color cosmetics business to a skincare brand, partnering with Francesco Clark on Clark's Botanicals. And it was such an amazing experience for me 
to you know really work not only at the at the helm of a company but working with a really small business that's trying was trying to do so much trying to build out a team and break out into retail and um, you know acquire customers uh, and build a community and for me that experience is so valuable now um, at True Beauty Ventures so you know the second part of my career really immersed in beauty um, was was a dream come true as I've said and um, when when we moved back to Miami in 2019. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, the beauty industry wasn't as growing as it was, as it is now in Miami. In fact, um, you know, Miami has really transformed in the last few years and it's amazing to see. But when I first got down here, um, I was trying to figure out how do I, do I go back into investing? Do I stay in the beauty space? I was doing a lot of consulting roles for both private equity and for beauty brands. And it just so happened that my worlds collided. And I got a phone call in February of 2020 from my co-founder, Rich Gersten, who's been a colleague and a friend and a mentor of mine for many years. We've known each other since 2010. And when he called me and said, hey, I have an idea uh, to start a fund dedicated to just investing in beauty and wellness and to invest in early stage businesses uh, that was really born out of a frustration that he had after investing in beauty for decades and being restricted on the types of businesses he could invest in, he couldn't invest in any brand with a without a uh, with a minimum check of ten or twenty is what his private equity firms at the time would allow him to do, and so he missed out on a lot of opportunities to invest in really fast growing, amazing beauty businesses. And so when he called me and said, "Would you want to join me in building this venture?" I think I thought about it for like a half a second and jumped at the opportunity and um, said absolutely yes. And True Beauty Ventures was born um, in the middle of COVID, uh, in the middle of the you know craziness and the uncertainty. Um, and so here we are today. And I can share more about that journey. That probably is a whole other podcast in and of itself. Um, but that's that's kind of what brought me to to today. Go back a little bit, Christina, because I think a lot of people who are listening to the show really like to hear about the jumps and the transitions. So when you were on the finance side and you were an investment banker and you obviously were on the private equity side, when you went to the brand side, what was your first job there? And what was that transition like? Because I think people often don't know where they find their place on the brand side or on the investor side. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I it was amazing for me to realize how little I actually knew because <laughs> be, and quite honestly being on only on one side of the table and only seeing how you not seeing I should say how the sausage is made really only gave me one perspective and to realize how hard it was to actually execute a strategy that is so clearly laid out in black and white on paper. You know, why can't you just quickly, you know, pivot the business or launch a product or expand distribution? It is so hard to actually do all of those things. And when I was at the co my first company at Laura Geller, it was eye-opening to see how hard it was to even make 
small decisions because it required cross-functional um, effort. It required, you know, engaging of vendors and retailers. And there was this whole ecosystem that had to move in order for action to happen. So for me to realize that this is actually incredibly difficult to do and it takes time um, and takes patience, I think was very important for me as now back in an investor role to see. It also made me incredibly empathetic to founders and management teams because this stuff's not easy and it's all encompassing and people work very, very hard day in and day out. Um, and I just felt so energized by not only the the camaraderie across the teams, but also just the energy in the beauty industry. Period. Um, but there were certain things that you know I took for granted as an investor um, that quickly within the first few months I realized, my goodness, I I have a lot to learn. Um, and so where did they put me? I think is another. You know, they they quite honestly didn't know what to do with me necessarily in that, sure, I had really strong financial skills and analytical skills. So the way that they approached it, and, and Alana Drell Zeifer was the CEO at the time, and she's an amazing teacher and a, a mentor of mine. So she said, you want to learn about the beauty industry, you got to go into operations. And so I joined the ops team. I worked in project management, which helped me touch every team within the company and help me put in processes and learn about cross-functional, you know, uh, engagement across teams and what it takes to actually get a product from concept all the way through to market. And so that's kind of where I really cut my teeth was learning on the ops side. And then I did, was able to do some marketing and some sales. Um, and then of course, finance was always my bread and butter. So I would, I would provide help where needed there. Um, but yeah, it was really just an immersive experience kind of rotating across all different teams. And for me, I called it my executive beauty MBA. And I really, I earned that over the three years that I was there. That's so refreshing for you to say that, Christina, because I feel like I talk to a lot of investors and a lot of private equity types. And so many of them are like, I know it all. I know everything. And the brand side is a totally, totally different beast. You know, something that you said earlier in the conversation about how you were in these smaller brands that were in high growth mode, you know, whether it was Laura Geller or Clark's Botanicals, obviously you saw the pain points then by being internal of what it took to grow a business, which I think marries well with what you're doing now at True Beauty. Would you say that? Absolutely. I think that experience is so invaluable because not only does it allow me to step in and help where needed. Obviously, I can't come in and quote unquote operate, right? And and really take on a more full-time role. We have 12 portfolio companies, so that's not actually possible. But I'm a I can come in and I can really help diagnose the situation and provide advice and perspectives, having been in the founder's seat or the management team's seat. And I think it does add a lot of value in that respect. And again, doing things with empathy and doing things with, you know, patience, knowing that you can't just change things with a snap of the finger. It, it does take time. Um, and then I think the other thing it allows me to do is because I've seen a lot of things go right and a lot of things go wrong in my operating roles, I can hopefully help 
avoid some of those same pitfalls, avoid some of those same mistakes and apply that experience to, you know, to the situation. And so I think that's hopefully valuable uh, to the founders and, and the teams that we work with in our portfolio. Beyond like the emerging brand proposition, you said a second ago that Rich, uh, Rich Gersten, who we both know very well and is kind of a soothsayer in the in the beauty industry, um, you know, he felt like he was missing out on opportunities, you know, at the $10 million, $20 million check size. So True Beauty really focuses on the one to five, one to 10 million, correct? Will you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So we identified the white space to really be that one to $5 million check size. And we typically come in really in a little bit of a tighter range, that one to $3 million check size. Uh, and by doing so, we're able to invest a little bit more meaningfully in, in companies where we have very strong conviction. And what it also has allowed us to do is to execute a strategy of following on in the ones that need more money, which inevitably, if things are going really well, they're going to need more money. Beauty is a very working capital intensive industry. And to be able to support growth, you need resources, you need inventory, you need to invest in marketing, et cetera. So the opportunity for us to kind of come in in that one to $3 million check size white space, and then also follow on meaningfully in, in the brands that, that are winning, that are working, where we have really strong partnerships with them, that's been the strategy we've executed to date in Fund One. Um, and we're actually uh, kicking off, and we've kicked off fundraising for Fund Two, which will be a much larger fund than Fund One, but it'll allow us to invest even more as a follow-on, even more meaningfully in the brands that are working to the tune of up to 10 million, which is really exciting because we could potentially come in uh, and and you know have a, a smaller investment to start, see how the brand grows, develop a great partnership with the founder, and then come in and potentially even lead their next round with a five, seven million dollar check, which is amazing um, to be able to support our founders in a long-term way. Will you tell me a little bit about what the ethos of True Beauty is? Because obviously we can talk about check size, but many of the brands that you work with um, and are, are part of your portfolio company are, you know, first to market, are, you know, breaking category or product trends, and they are also on the smaller size. So where do you kind of, when you think about it in your way, what would you say, you know, your proposition is in the larger landscape? There's so many things that that we look at. Um, it's really hard to pinpoint one, but I would say the top of the list by far is brand and founder. And it's is and and I'll take a step back. We probably have evaluated a thousand to maybe eleven hundred brands since we launched True Beauty in the summer of 2020. So there is an unbelievable amount of brands that are launched in this space, as we know. When you see enough of them and you see enough reps, if one comes to you that looks different, sounds different, acts different you can spot it pretty quickly. And so we've invested almost kind of like one out of every hundred uh, is kind of been our hit rate to date. And so that one out of every hundred really stands out when you've seen so many of them that don't meet 
the qualifications. And really at, like I said, the top of that list is brand and founder. It's does this, is this brand differentiated? Is it unique? And does it have the opportunity to be an enduring brand, to not just be a brand of the moment because of the trend or because of the momentum in a category? Can it stand the test of time? And behind that brand is the founder who at the beginning, when a brand is small, founder and brand are so intertwined. And that founder story and that, you know, compelling reason for launching and and for the brand to exist is is very much tied to that founder. And on top of that, what we've learned over the last two years is the relationship and the partnership with the founder matters so much. So you can have an amazing brand, but if you don't have a strong founder and, you know, strong team behind that founder, you may not have the best result. You may have a mediocre result, even if you have an incredible A-plus brand. So finding partners that you know align with us, that we, you know, together we can weather any storm and also celebrate all the successes and have a really, you know, strategically aligned vision for how to grow is has so crucial and has really risen in terms of you know the ranks. And for us, what does that mean? How do you how do you vet a founder in that way. Uh, it takes it takes time. And that's why one of the many lessons we've learned over the last couple of years is we would we never really want to rush into doing a deal and we don't want to be very transactional. We want to actually be relationship builders and get to know founders way before an investment is going to take place so that we could start to get to know each other and demonstrate the value we would add. We can see how the founders react to our insights and our feedback. Do they take it? Do they push back? You know, just all of that stuff, meeting in person. I mean, for the longest time when we launched the the beginning of the fund, we weren't meeting founders in person and we were making investments and, and we, we had to do it that way because of COVID. Now the opportunity to get together and be in person is also really valuable and part of that, that vetting. Um, and then of course, there's a whole beauty ecosystem and the network around us that we could utilize to vet that founder. So brand and founder, number one. Number two is product and and efficacy as well but do you have high quality product is that differentiated and and is it does it deliver on the promises um, and does the consumer validate that those that that it does deliver on those promises and there's you know a ton of ways to validate and a brand could have patented technology like a k18 or it could be more about you know the ritual and the experience and less about you know any kind of technology and there's all different ways to demonstrate high quality efficacious products. So we spend time understanding that because you can always get a consumer to buy something once, but how do you get them to buy something again is to deliver on on those brand promises and and have really good product. Um, And then I think the third piece is, is distribution. And these brands are small, right? So they may not have a lot of scale and they may not have a lot of distribution opportunities at the moment, but do they have the opportunity to expand into retail? Um, Did they start direct to consumer and then slowly started expanding into retail? Do they have 
an anchor retail partner to align themselves with and to really help them grow and scale. Uh, we that's a that's a big box to check for us. Is you know if, if they're prestige, are they on the radar of Sephora Ulta, or, or are they already there? And if they're there, how are they performing? I mean, we're big believers in in really productive distribution and small starting small. You don't have to over proliferate. You don't have to have tons of accounts. You really need to have strong retail partnerships where you're meaningful to them and and they are meaningful to you. So that's that's another big one. Um and I think the last piece on the on the direct to consumer side is you know it's it's really the the data that we can analyze from the direct to consumer business that tells us, you know, how's the is the consumer coming back? How frequently are they coming back? How recently have they come back? Um, obviously the profitability metrics around CAC versus AOV and LTV, all that good stuff, we will double click there and understand and and infer from that, you know, how, how the health of that business. But ultimately we're huge believers in omni-channel, and that's really kind of where the focus lies on on distribution. And of course there's other stuff underneath that. But those are kind of the big buckets. And when a brand checks all of that, plus we get the real warm and fuzzies from a founder and have that relationship built with them over time, that's something that we will lean into heavily. So talk to me about your brands in your portfolio. You mentioned K18, obviously you have Moon Juice, you know, you have a large swath of different kinds of brands. Some with some very famous faces like Amanda Chantal Bacon and um, Moon Juice, also Winnie Harlow, you know, who's a model, who's now a beauty founder. Talk to me about those brands. Like, what was it? I mean, if you could just name check a, f- a few of them about what was their secret sauce beyond, you know, what we're seeing superficially um, when you're not active in the beauty space as an investor. Yeah, I I think for most of our brands in the portfolio, they are either currently category leaders or very much you know driving growth innovation and 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 disruption in their the categories that they're in a great example is mod we so we most of our brands are in beauty your traditional categories of hair skin color but then we also invest in wellness. And when we were evaluating what categories in wellness to invest in, there are so many. As it's it's an amorphous term. It can mean a ton of different things and span, um, you know, uh, some spanning more into health, some actually intersecting with beauty. So we were trying to figure that out. And sexual wellness was a nuanced category. It was growing. And, and we evaluated maybe 10 to 12 different brands. And what it came down to is which brand is actually trying to create a true assortment and and really trying to create to stand for something more than just the product itself and kind of go be has a mission that goes way beyond that and for mod and and eva was creating modern intimacy embracing modern intimacy for all and really being broad and and inclusive across uh, sexual orientation and gender and whatnot, but in a way that was incredibly elevated. And of all the brands we evaluated, we kept coming back to the positioning of Maud. And of course, Eva being just this trailblazer uh, force of nature. And so that was one where we we just we we knew we had to make that happen somehow. And luckily Eva let us 
let us lead her series A round. But it goes, you know, which what which brand is really trying to go above and beyond and trying to do things in a in a new and and different way. And and it's interesting because you know you did mention uh, Moon Juice and Moon Juice has been around for over 10 years. So that one, you know, it's not one that just popped up and and really is riding the wave of wellness. Moon Juice was a champion and a, and a category leader um, and category creator, quite honestly, when Amanda launched the brand. And so the opportunity for us was, how do we now take a brand that really means something to people that stands for something and have it play in the way that modern wellness consumers are evolving and with that category momentum behind them, but anchored in a brand that has incredibly strong DNA with such you know high quality efficacious product. How do we kind of bring that brand and reinvigorate it with with capital and with resources to to capitalize on the momentum that that we're seeing today in the wellness industry? Um, and so you have some that are disruptors, some that are have been leaders for a long time, and there's an opportunity to reinvigorate them with growth. I think what what I'm getting at is what started off as a fund focus only on what we call like early stage businesses, maybe some that are a year or two years old, has really evolved to be a bit more stage agnostic because we are such specialists in beauty and wellness that we actually have the ability to invest in a pre-revenue business like K-Skin, as you mentioned, or invest in a Series C stage business like Moon Juice. And if we can identify an inflection point of breakout growth, that can happen earlier, that can happen sometimes later, we want to be able to do those deals. We just want to be able to back the best brands with the best founders and, and products out there. And so that's actually a big learning over the last couple of years that we didn't know that this would evolve in this way. And, and that's how it has. Tell me a little bit about how much category and cyclical trends play into this. Because obviously hair is very hot right now. Makeup's back, quote unquote. You know, skincare is still a big piece of the market, but, you know, it's still kind of flat compared to last year. What would you say about that? Because, you know, I think the investors who are very smart, yourselves included, obviously see these trends earlier than others and may be actually trend agnostic. We obviously follow the the trends. We live and breathe everything beauty. We read glossy every day. We read, you know, all the research reports. We follow everything. So clearly are, are aware of the trends, but we will, we're not necessarily um, thesis driven or t- trend driven in that way. We want to invest in the best brands and founders that'll create enduring brands. So for us, we are patient capital. We are long-term capital. We understand that there are ebbs and flows in this industry. And we've, we've been around the block long enough to know that makeup's up and then, and then it's down and hair has a moment and skin and it was clean skin. And now it's clinical efficacy, right? That, that happens. I think one of the benefits of having a portfolio in this space is you can kind of, you know, risk adjust for some of that, but ultimately these brands should be built to withstand those trends. And we're investing in people that understand the trends. And honestly, if they should be so focused on the consumer as their North Star that they can evolve 
with the consumer and they can evolve with what the consumer is looking for and the innovation that they're looking for and the experience that they want to see. And so hopefully the brands that we've invested in can weather those types of cyclical movement, um, you know, movements back and forth across category, um, as long as they're, they continue to deliver the the high quality product that consumers want, and they're able to connect and engage with them in innovative ways and in the ways that they want to be engaged in the places they want to be engaged at. So it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where we know that those ebbs and flows are coming. So we're not going to necessarily make an investment decision driven by that. You know, it just so happens that our portfolio has, um, a few different hair care brands and a few different skincare brands. And that is actually as a result of the brands that came to market um, when we invested starting in 2020, hair and skin had a lot of growth versus makeup didn't. But we still made a makeup investment in 2020 in the dead of the pandemic when makeup was completely tanking. And it wasn't because of Clearly, it wasn't because of the trend, because um, that would have implied we wouldn't have done that. It was because of the founder um, and the product and the brand that she was going to bring to market um, that got us excited. So long-winded long way of saying trends matter, but they certainly don't dictate our investment approach. So I think you were talking about Wendy and Calaray uh, just a second ago. You know, that was obviously just a concept, I feel like, when you were first talking to Wendy. But she obviously had the pedigree of starting Urban Decay. She was one of these OG beauty founders who was on to her second act in beauty. So I can imagine what was compelling there. But, you know, you didn't have a full-fledged brand built out. So what was, you know, the pull there? Yeah, no, 100%. I That was our second investment, and it was a pre-revenue concept. So for us, talk about conviction in the founder, her background, her ability to create incredible product, uh, coupled with her launch with Sephora and the support that she had with Sephora. I mean, by no means was this a traditional pre-revenue startup that was just launching and launching online as an example. It was, she launched with an entire you know, full door Sephora uh, rollout. And that is incredibly unique uh, to see. And so for us, it was a combination of, you know, her, her distribution and really the, the white space that she was going after, which is clean, sustainable, efficacious makeup with payoff, but also that was fun and embodied, you know, California life and also had elements of wellness to it and really kind of sounded and looked very different from the sea of sameness that that existed in clean makeup at the time. Switching gears a little bit, Christina, you know, you talked about the ebbs and flows of being in this business, which, you know, yes, that's obviously true if you're building a business that lasts, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. But at the same time, when you think about just the last two years, there has been such chaos and between COVID and now economic pressures and inflation, like where are you really filling in for these brands? Because a lot of these brands are very young and may not have a finance department and a project manager and a marketer, like all at their fingertips. Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. We spend a lot of time with founders thinking through their organization. 
How do you build it out? When's the right time? Do you build ahead of the growth? How senior should we go? Uh, and it, there's no one size fits all answer. It really is dependent on the company and their distribution strategy. Um, but we spend a lot of time figuring out what that kind of puzzle piece of the organizational structure looks like, and then also helping them recruit talent because hiring recruiters can be expensive. Sometimes you have to do it, but utilizing our network, the Tribute Network, and really being able to bring in resources to the brands, whether that's full-time or through consultants and other contractors, that's where we've we've spent a, a good amount of time. I think the other thing that we spend a lot of time on is just making those uh, distribution strategy decisions because brands want to grow and they want to grow fast. And sometimes they have, sometimes they're lucky enough where they have the opportunity to choose between launching in one retailer versus another or launching in both. And, you know, we spend a lot of time helping them think through those decisions because distribution mistakes can be really difficult sometimes to come back from. And so we do want to spend time making sure you've got the right partner, you've struck the right deal, and you've got the good margin profile to be able to support that growth. There's a lot that goes into that. So, you know, making those decisions, I think when it comes down to really getting in operationally, I think that'll happen in the cases of a fire. <laughs> There's always fires that kind of have to get put, be put out. And luckily our founders feel confident enough and trust us enough to say, Hey, I have a problem. Like, can you help me think through this or help me solve it? And we always tell them, please come to us with the problems first, because the only problem we can't help you solve is the one that we don't know about. So if you feel like you are, you know, want to share something, do it and we'll, we'll get in there and we'll figure that out. And I think some, with some of our brands, it's been, you know, especially ahead of uncertain times economically, it's, you know, making sure that they've got the right cash management, that they've got expenses in check, um, that they're, you know, working on ways to improve their gross margins, um, to make sure they can weather any, you know, additional uncertainty or economic downturns that may come their way, that they're prepared to do that. And we, you know, we, we preach all the time, you know, you don't have to be profitable at day one, but you need to have a path to profitability. And especially when it comes to direct to consumer, I would say most brands that we know have pulled back because they realize that they are not first order profitable. And especially for those that don't have very high AOVs because they may be playing in mass or mastige, it's really difficult um, to be paying the CACs that people are paying. And so backing off from that and figuring out what other ways can I acquire con customers and, and, and engage consumers. And there's so many different ways to try. And I think one of the things that we try to encourage with our brands is don't throw spaghetti against all the walls and try to do everything at once. Let's do this in a way where what will result in the highest effort but also maybe the highest reward, you focus on those things. Or even the lowest effort and the highest reward, shoot, do those all day long, right? But don't try to do everything at once. Let's be very you know, tactical and try to prioritize the most meaningful things first. And that could be, let's try you know, other ways to engage our community and try 
short form videos or do some kind of live shopping event or even go IRL and do more activations IRL or you know we have we don't really have a brand that's really playing that much in web3 but there's all these things that could be tested and tried and so helping organizations prioritize is huge um, and a benefit that we add because we're bringing in a perspective as kind of external people we're not living in it day to day so we can actually provide that that zoomed out view and and give that counsel. What would you say, you know, your brands are most worried about and you're most worried about right now given, you know, all the pressures that are are facing founders and facing operators today? I guess it depends what the brand is trying to accomplish. I mean, if, you know, if you're launching I would say right now it's never been easier to launch a brand and it's also never been harder to scale it. So depending on what your strategy is to scale, I think every brand's a little bit worried about how they scale in this environment. I mentioned DTC, incredibly difficult to acquire people through paid marketing right now and and get a good return on that. So they're trying to come up with new ways. If you're in wholesale it's, you know, how do I drive traffic into store? Do I need to engage in in-store support, which is really expensive for some of these small brands or participate in programming and other activations, which also cost money to do. So everybody's trying to figure out how do I scale? And, you know, I think other investors, and this frustrates me sometimes, other investors put so much pressure on their brands to scale really fast. And that's hard to do in beauty sometimes. And I think the brands that really endure are the ones that are that grow thoughtfully and do it in a way that is, you know, brand accretive and not kind of just for the sake of growth or growth at all costs type of mentality. So it's reassuring the brands that it's okay to pull back a little bit on top line if it means you're more profitable if it means that you actually can identify ways to to grow more profitably. Um, I think brands are also very concerned just in general about you know cash management. We're seeing, gosh, where the the investment landscape hasn't slowed down. There's definitely a lot of brands coming to market and trying to raise money, but we've definitely seen a pullback in terms of valuations. We've seen a pullback in terms of the um, dollar amounts that are being raised by brands right now because they're not getting the valuations that they want. So they want to prevent some dilution. And so they're pulling back a little bit on the amount of money that they're raising, just, just raising enough to get to the next through the next 12 or 18 months. And so that cash runway and extension and making sure that they're appropriately capitalized to weather whatever may come over the next year, year and a half is on is really on people's minds. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of extensions of rounds by existing investors that are just kind of giving people that extra runway needed. Um, and sadly, we're also seeing a lot of rounds just not get done or get done in a down round, which is which is really tough. So I think people just want to make sure that they're still growing during these uncertain times and, and that they're also preserving as much cash as possible and doing it in a responsible way. Let's end on an up note, Christina. You know, obviously we're seeing difficult times now and difficult times ahead, but, you know, disruption and economic recessions often lead to lots of innovation, lots of exciting brands. 
and lots to look forward to. So what are you most hopeful about or what are you most excited about to see in the next 12 to 24 months? For sure. And a lot of our brands and our portfolio were born out of COVID times and out of troubled times. So you're 100% right. Disruption really does create innovation and ingenuity. And you know, I'm very bullish about the beauty industry. Obviously, I support it entirely and we have a whole fund built around it. But the industry has continued to perform. We've seen how resilient it can be. We've seen it kind of comping now positive, positively over 2019 levels. Um, and, and you know, despite the the downturn of, of COVID in certain categories like makeup, we're seeing that rebound. So, you know, the consumer for beauty generally is less sensitive to economic pressures, especially the consumer that's shopping more prestige channels, which is where most of our brands play today. Um, and so I'm su- I'm very excited about the, the continued growth of beauty. I'm also very excited about the intersection of beauty and health, which is wellness. And that mind shift change that happened during COVID around self-care and, you know, just uh, you know, these kind of lo- investing in yourself as as part of these affordable luxuries that the beauty and wellness space provide, I think that's really exciting. And we're seeing more and more innovation around, you know, how do you bring those experiences to various groups of people. So whether it's, you know, brands that are launching for underserved communities that have historically been ignored and they're much more inclusive. And you're seeing this in skincare in particular with brands that are um, offering products for more melanated skin. You're seeing it in hair care for textured hair. You're seeing it for even in wellness brands that are going after Black and Latinx communities that maybe have not necessarily, you know, invested in their wellness because there weren't brands speaking to them in the right way. There's, I love that about what's happening right now in the industry. As far as, you know, innovation, I'm really excited by what's going on in biotech and how that's being applied to beauty and wellness. I mean, look at K18. It's a, it's a, you know, born out of biotech technology and really trying to figure out how do we repair ourselves at the molecular level? And, you know, whether that's, you know, in our hair, our skin, our gut. I think those are really, really interesting. Um, And then I think another uh, interesting one too is just continued the the trend of personalization, but, you know, really unlocking it in a way that is, um, feels differentiated. And, you know, it's, it's really hard. You can't create an one individual skew for every human on the planet. So not in the not in product necessarily, but in the way that the consumer experiences the product and what's offered to them in terms of, you know, benefits and really just brands speaking to consumers more directly and personalizing their offerings to them in a better way. I think that is a huge unlock for brands to connect uh, more broadly and to be able to find consumers in, in different places. And so um, AI is really going to help with that. And I think it's our, we're already seeing the effects of AI with TikTok and uh, you know, already. And so I think um, I think all of that's really exciting. And we're going to continue to keep our eyes out for, you know, every investment we can in beauty and wellness. Fund two is going to be a much larger fund. So we'll we'll see what we're what what next year holds. Um, but yeah, I am very excited about what we're doing. I have never felt more um, really passionate about about what I do day in and day out. Thank you so much for being here, Christina. It was great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.